Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Before we get underway today, I do want to acknowledge that we are doing this event on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, um, our First Nations people were our first storytellers. Um, and it is an honour to continue in that tradition here today and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. My name's Rick Morton. I don't know if, um, if you've been around um, for the last few years, but I've been writing some books, um, doing some journalism. Um, my first book, 100 Years of Dirt, came out in 2018. Uh, and I've been writing a couple of little tones ever since. But we're joined today by two writers and journalists extraordinaire in Paul Kennedy and Jason Olm. Um, you probably know who they are, but I will just give you a brief rundown before we get underway. Paul Kennedy is an ABC journalist with more than 25 years' experience. His most recent book is his memoir, Funky Town. This is an amazing book, an amazing book. Uh, his four previous books um, have included Hell on the Way to Heaven, which was co-authored with Chrissy Foster, and it was a key component in the push for Australia's Royal Commission uh, on Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. Um, an incredible journalist. Jason Om is a Walkley award-winning journalist. Never had a Walkley, Jason, but you have, so that's good. <laughs> good for you. Uh, <laughs> with the, he's a I'm Walkley, very humble. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a great award very to have. Very humble to be here. <laughs> he's a Walkley award-winning reporter with the ABC's 7.30 program. You will have seen him, because I imagine we are all dutiful ABC watchers in the room. Good, correct. Mm, correct answer. Well yeah. Um, imagine if you weren't. And you're coming to this. Um, he's been a presenter on the ABC News Channel and a reporter for ABC uh, News Breakfast and Late Line and ABC Radio. In 2017, Jason uh, won widespread praise for his personal story um, about his dad's 16-year struggle to accept him as gay. It earned Jason a nomination in the 2018 New South Wales LGBTI Honour Awards. And his memoir, All Mixed Up, is his first book. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, nostalgic trip in fact, both of them are, I must say. A trip back in time, back to our childhoods, and then through adult life. Um, I might just, I don't want to ruin what happens in either of these books, but I do just want to get a, a sense, Jason, I'll start with you. Why this book, and why did you feel compelled to write it? Well, writing this memoir, All Mixed Up, was a deeply personal experience for me. The, the reason being is that in 2013, it was the 20th anniversary of Mum's death, and the same year, my grandmother died, and I had built this barricade against all of the emotions and the trauma associated with me finding her at 12 years old, struggling in bed, and I had to call the ambulance. And so when 2013 came around, all of the feelings from behind the barricade came crashing through, and I had to confront the past because I had a very confusing childhood, and looking back on it, I felt exhausted. And so writing the memoir was about, re about interrogating the past and redefining it. So I went on this wild journey looking back at my childhood, um, but also investigating mum and who she was, because I had a very complex relationship with her. Um, you know, she would always say, mum had a nervous breakdown, and dad would always say, you know, mum had a nervous breakdown. But mm. What, what does that actually mean? Yeah, what kid understands what, that? Exactly. You know, I was only a kid. And 
it, it was very confusing being with mum because she, while she could be touchy-feely and while she, you know, was full of hugs and kisses, she was also very cruel to me and very mean. And that was very, very um, discombobulating yeah. for me as, as, as a child. So when, you know, when 2013 came around, I, I wanted to interrogate that. And a few years later, that's when I started to investigate my family history and what, and what happened to her before she came to Australia. So it's, you know, the memoir is about my mum and my family, which is a multiracial, multi-faith family, but it's also, you know, about my dad as well in terms of, the, you know, everybody, most people might know the dad story, yeah. but this is actually joining up the dad story with the mum story and then also the story about my half-sister and my really complicated family with, who has all different backgrounds, you know. So my dad's Cambodian and he's Buddhist and my mum was Eurasian and she was Catholic and um, I've got a half-sister in Malaysia who's Muslim. And so as the title, you know, as the title explains, you know, my family is really, really all mixed up. And so, um, you know... Great opportunity it's, it's, for different it's, celebrations throughout yeah, the year. Yeah, it's a reflection though. of Australia as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful book and I'll come back to some of those stories mm. in a minute. Paul Kennedy, you were a beautiful kid whose parents <laughs> loved you, but you were also a bit of a shit. Yes. And that, Thanks, Rick. No, I mean, I thought you'd appreciate that. I, we didn't discuss any Thanks of this for sugar coating it. came on stage. But like a lovable one. You reminded me of my brother. Yeah. Um, and so tell me a little bit about Funky Town and what the premise of this, yeah. of this is, because it's, um, again, it's just dripping in this kind of, this languid sense of Australian summers and, and adulthood and the transition. Yeah, uh, thanks, Rick. Um, and I think it shares some similarities uh, with Jason's story as well. I'm writing about myself as a, uh, as a teenager. The, probably the big difference is that I've, I've written uh, almost entirely about one year, 1993, uh, in Frankston, which is, um, you know, uh, people in Melbourne know Frankston as uh, the outer suburbs. It's actually a, a, what they... They tried to create a satellite city. It was proclaimed a city in 1961, well before it was anything like that. But when I grew up there, and born in 1975 and moved into um, uh, Seaford, which is the next suburb uh, up the train line, uh, grew up on a housing estate uh, and just thought it was paradise. I had a, had a beautiful upbringing, um, couldn't want for anything. My mum and dad were great. I had a brother and two sisters, and, and I just thought... Um, I. I'd, I seriously thought I was growing up in paradise. Um, Frankston had many names. Uh, Franga, Frangalis, uh, it's got uh, names these days that weren't around back then. But my little sister used to call it Funky Town. And that was even after we'd grown up and realised, uh, you know, the nuances of Frankston. A lot of disadvantage in Frankston, a very heavy, heavy uh, drinking population and something that I, um, I really championed as a 17-year-old and that's what I was describing. So... Uh, why did I write this book? Uh, I've got probably two, two reasons. One was to try and figure some stuff out. Like, like you said, Jason, you talk about the wall that you built around mm. um, your mother's death. Um, for me, I, I, uh, it's better described as a mask that I was wearing, a mask of bravado at this stage. Um, so I wanted to examine why, why I was a, a bit of a shit, <laughs> why I made those uh, terrible choices and ended up in jail and got expelled from school all in this one year, um, which is um, still very bright in my memory for many reasons, not, not least of all because there was a serial killer in our neighbourhood at that time, so it was a terrifying time as well. But um, the other reason I wanted to write about it was to examine masculinity 
um, much talked about these days, uh, you know, and I didn't want to just write about toxic masculinity, um, but there are big parts of that. And I was, a, I was a champion of that culture at the time, but, um, but also the other parts of boys becoming men. There's some great parts of masculinity and just uh, experiences of joy, mainly to do with football, yeah. but also to do with my literature class at high school. So there was um, that contrast as well to not be an expert at, at, at the subject, but just to tell people this is what happened to me and, and um, these are my reflections on, on masculinity, boys becoming men. I love that. I love that you make the distinction as well because sometimes people assume that when you're talking about bad traits of men that you hate all men, but um, I'm gay, I won't speak for Jason, but I'm a huge fan of masculinity. Um, <laughs> like it, it can be done well. Um, <laughs> Um, I'm not saying I'm modelling it, but I'm saying it can be done well. I just want to read a passage from um, early on in Funky Town, Paul Kennedy. Um, I always loved the feel of footies. I used to take them to bed as if they were teddy bears. In my waking hours, I found it impossible to walk past any kind of ball without picking it up and playing with it. It was a compulsion, as natural to me as breathing. If I couldn't find a football, I'd roll up some socks and make a game. Steve, um, <laughs> that's your older brother. Older brother, yes. Older brother, yeah. Steve and I played matches at night inside the lounge room or along the hall. We kept going until we broke something, or mum and dad told us for the umpteenth time to stop thumping the walls. I don't know why that stood out to me so much, because it, I mean, every boy I've ever known, essentially, um, even, you know, the ones like myself who were never really into that stuff, but it was just kind of this weird instinct. Yeah, um, yeah. And it never really left you, though, did it? It never has, no. <laughs> I'm, and I'm now a, a coach... So I've been a coach for a long time and um, father of three sons. So I'm, I'm always examining nature versus nurture. And, uh, you know, did I love football? Have I devoted my probably too much of my life to, a, to this game um, because mum and dad got me a football when I was a baby? Or um, perhaps there's a little bit of that. But to me, uh, sport and particularly footy is is exactly that. It's, it's just an, a natural thing. I've always wanted to be around it. It's been a... Um, a great, great thing to play, to watch, just to be involved. And when I got, you know, uh, when I was uh, horrendously insecure, which led to all those behaviours that we might get to, um, binge drinking and so on, mm -hmm. it was the football that was still a place I could go to and, and just have a, a, a pure experience. So, yeah, it was a natural thing, I think. Um, and I was, I was probably lucky to be coordinated and, and good at sports as well. So that's another, that's another reason <laughs> you pursue help, things, right? It does help, Paul. It yeah. does help. Yeah, yeah, so, um, so I was, I was good at it. I, I perhaps had praise and um, through growing up through being um, athletic as well. So I had all that praise. It made, made me feel good. Um, but, yeah, I, to me it was, it's mostly natural. And, yeah, and I'm really thankful for it too. But... I am aware that I may have spent too much time in football. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not one of these people who thinks that sport is bad. I, I, in fact, I love it. One of the yeah. happiest moments of my life was watching the North Queensland Cowboys win against the Broncos. Um, not because of the game itself, because I struggled to understand exactly what was happening. I, I love, I grew up on NRL, but um, because my friend's husband was there and he was 40-something, had never seen his dad cry in his yeah. life and his yeah. dad was bawling. There you go. Yep. And I was like, that's an amazing thing. Beautiful moment. It's yeah. a beautiful moment. Um, um, speaking of masculinity, Jason, tell me a little bit about your dad, who I, I, I love in this book, while also recognising that it was very difficult sometimes for you. But I just wanted to read this passage because, you know, you mentioned that your mum was unwell. Um, and you mentioned that, you know, dad was always open about mum's condition. Perhaps he was ahead of his time. She has mental illness. He 
told my favourite primary school teacher. Perhaps he was appealing for sympathy for the school to go easy on me. She is sick, he said. She had a nervous breakdown. The teacher replied with comforting noises. I mean, he would have been ahead of his time, was he not? Yeah, well, this was the 1980s. Uh, and in fact, as, you, as we discover in the book, it, it was preceding that as well, the 1970s, mm. when he had to deal with all these issues. And back then, nobody talked about mental illness. I mean, there was not the level of awareness there is now. You know, you have Beyond Blue, you, even after news bulletins, you've got the yeah. lifeline number, Numbers. and it's, it's very well, you know, spoken about. But back then, you know, my dad was, you know, very much alone because his, his wife effectively broke down and collapsed and then he had very few resources uh, as a Cambodian migrant uh, who came here by himself to Australia in the 1960s um, to work all this out. And he had a very close family confidant who helped him, but it was pretty much all, all of dad. He had to really look inside himself and draw upon that strength to help mum because Effectively, Dad was her, her carer. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the thing, the, the instinctive thing for him to do was to go to the doctor. Yeah. Which, which is kind of a contradiction because, you know, there is in mental health, you know, people don't want to go to the doctor. Yet his instinct was, let's take mum to the doctor. We've yeah. got to get her fixed or we've got to help her. And that was the way he did it. But there weren't any awareness campaigns to help him do no. that. And it's like, it was, it was very pragmatic. Yes, it was he, very pragmatic. He seemed like a pragmatic man. Yeah, Dad's a very practical man. He, he studied engineering uh, when he was in Australia in the 1960s. And, you know, he's great at fixing things. He's, he's you know, scientific. He's more practical. He's very literal. <laughs> um, but, you know, he, he did that all by himself. Uh, at the same time, you know, his country was burning to the burning to the ground in the 1970s with the Khmer Rouge genocide. Yeah. So he was in Australia cocooned while his, his country was, you know, burning to the ground. And then he's, at the same time, his, his wife is having this crisis. Do you ever speak about that, the Cambodian genocide? It was a real struggle to get anything out of him yeah. on that in this book because my family doesn't talk about the genocide openly. Uh, Dad experienced that vicariously because he was in Australia and at the time of the genocide his brother and his sisters were in Cambodia and he didn't know whether they were alive or dead and when I talked to him when I talked <laughs> to him about this uh, as part of the book I you know you want to get the quote yes. you want to get a quote <laughs> from your dad I'm trying to you know, draw a quote out of him. Every time and, I used to talk to my mum, she'd be like, stop being a journalist, I want to talk to my son. <laughs> exactly. And I said, well, Dad, you know, that's a pretty big thing. How did you feel about, you know, not knowing that you're relative? You know, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get the emotion out of him. And I'm saying, well, how did you know that, you know, how did you feel about not knowing what happened to your relatives? You know, that's a massive thing. And all he would say was, I thought they were dead. And then... That's it. There's no kind of unpacking. You know, he's not going to write an essay about it. No. But, but at the same time, that was the quote. You know, it's, I thought they were dead. That's all you need to know. Very stoic in its way, isn't it? It's like, accept the fact of this thing. Don't interrogate it because what good... Just to plough on. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, very much part of his character, just to, just to keep on ploughing on. 
regardless. I do, I do and that's a, that's a positive and a negative at the same time. Yes. <laughs> um, I think the bulldozer comment has been thrown around <laughs> a lot recently. Um, I do want to read this line about your dad because, honestly, it made me laugh so much. I think I Yeah, you must already know what I'm going to say. Uh, Straight-laced and practical, Dad liked to wear blue-grey woolen cardigans and square glasses, and he shuffled around the house in songs and thongs. Uh, socks and thongs. I sh- I've, it's been a long day already. Um, I've given away all the clues now. Uh, in summer, he occasionally wore a lime-green sarong. That's why I did that. And I dreaded his basic instinct leg cross on the couch. He used mint toothpicks to fiddle with his gums and carried quickies in his pocket. His trips to the toilet usually came with an announcement, I go pee-pee or I go make poo, as if he were a factory. <laughs> Your dad really was a factory in so many ways. It, was like, it yeah. seemed like life was uh, almost like a machine line. He's, he's kind of a... I kind of think of him as a, a bit of a mechanical man because, because he's, again, he's very practical with his, with his hands and uh, he and mum worked in factories as well. So they, they were in and out of factories. Dad worked at... Um, uh, Dad and Mum worked at a potato chip factory. They made Smith's, Smith's crisps and twisties and the like in Oakley, in the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne. Um, and then he also worked at a, an appliances factory, you know, uh, being a, a safety inspector on the production line at, at Phillips, then Hoover. And there's all these kind of, you know, restructures and he lost his job a number of times. Um, so, yeah, he, he is very practical, um, but he's not in tune with his emotions in the sense that he doesn't, he doesn't show them at all. And even now, it's very hard to kind of draw anything out of him. And even with this book, you know, I've kind of poured my heart out with this book. Um, and all he has said was, you know, it is very vivid. It takes me back. Um, but, that, but that's it, you know. Very vivid indeed. Mm. It is. Um, I'll come back to I want to ask you about your mum next. But, Paul, um, you focused on this one year, 1993. You're kind of at the edge of the world, in many ways, you're kind of, um, you're looking at girls. You're really preoccupied with love yeah. for a 17-year-old. <laughs> I'm surprised by that. You Weren't want you? someone to love you. Yeah. No, I didn't think anyone ever would. Right. So, <laughs> well, I, I, I doubted it, I guess, yeah, during that you did. time. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that, because like, obviously there's the outward appearance of raiding chicks, doing the kind of misogynist stuff yeah. like, with the boys, yep. which we all know to be wrong, and you obviously reflected on that even at the yeah. time. But at the same time, you're actually desperately looking for love. Yeah, yeah. So I was really closed off, um, I guess, um, suppress, suppressing any emotions that I had. I wanted to explain the way we were with girls and, and around girls. And for me, that was, um, that was difficult. So it was virtually um, a confession that, that I was hopeless at it, that I was, um, that I, uh, my friends and I sat around at school and we were really sexist. You know, we as you mentioned, we'd rate them by their looks and it was worse at the local footy club. Mm. So in my, in my world, once you get to be 15, you then progress to the under-17s in football and then that throws you into the senior football club. Um, so you go from Sunday afternoon junior football, all of a sudden you're playing on the Saturday before the seniors and then that became my world. So at that stage, I, was, I stopped looking at my dad as the role model for me, the masculine role model. Um, and dad was, you know, close to perfect as a role model. Um, uh, but I, I was leaving him to one side and I wanted to be like my brother and his mates. So there was drinking, 
there was bragging about sexual conquest, um, even if you had none to brag yeah. about. <laughs> uh, so the whole thing was a lie. Often I, write, I find that uh, directly correlated um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> phenomenon sometimes. For sure. And, uh, you know, through all of this, and we had, uh, I write about the, the literature class, which was a, a, a particular sort of uh, way out for me to, to talk about these, these things that I couldn't discuss with anyone else. And we were, uh, we were discussing Tess of the D'Urbervilles, yeah. um, Hardy's book, and uh, looking at the hypocritical ways that society viewed women. And, you know, that might have been an hour or so after um, my mates and I would sit out on a, on a table and look at all the girls and, and discuss uh, in completely um, similar ways, you know, um, women. So, yeah, I was locked in this and I was trying to figure stuff out. I wanted to be like my like the guys at the footy club. I wanted to brag about sexual conquest. But deep down, I really just wanted to fall in love. I, and I knew that. Um, it was really clear to me and I wrote it in my journal. So I've still got my journal that I can go back on. I was, I was desperate to, to have a girlfriend and uh, have that experience of, of loving someone and being loved. But I couldn't explain it to anyone. I couldn't talk to girls. Yeah, um, were... Until I go back and, and write the book, I, I didn't ever know why, but um, I never, was never good at expressing myself, probably f through fear of um, being teased by my friends or, or other blokes, you know, that I was soft. I was a soft cock. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, those other names were used for, for boys who spent time with girls. It was really, it's really interesting. And through, the, through writing the book, I became a student of this. Um, and, you know, I listened to feminists to talk about really early on, you know, eight, nine. And, Jason, I read a little uh, passage at the start of your book where you talked about your mum and she was like a soft tree and you liked to climb on her. Mm. That was really beautiful. And that reminded me too of the, the lessons that I've learned about how we are told to view the feminine um, as we grow up. Boys like me, you know, buffheads like me. <laughs> and by the time we're 10 or 11, it becomes not cool for your mum to drop you off out front of the school. Yeah, that's And right. uh, people tell you that you shouldn't hang around with girls, girl germs, and you go through all of those <clears> things. So in looking back and having some sort of wisdom now, not a lot, but a little bit. <laughs> I can look back and say, well, I was conditioned really not to spend time with girls, not to have girls as friends. And then that carried over for me and not being able to, to tell any girls how I felt about them and, and not even talk to them, not even want to be seen, not only holding hands, but talking and spending time with girls in the, in the, um, in the schoolyard. So that was why I was suppressing my, uh, my deep desire to, to love and be loved. I, I do wonder. Yeah. Sorry, to just yeah, jump in here, but do. I do wonder whether because you mentioned, you know, parenting, and I wonder whether parenting because obviously we're from a particular era, we're, yeah. a, we're of a particular vintage. I'm a bit older than you. But yes, yeah. <laughs> and so, so, and, and you know, my when I was writing this book, I was writing it and thinking, my dad and my mum were very, very traditional because in terms of the gender roles, you know, dad mm. was at work. I mean, mum worked for a time. Um, and, but mum was expected to stay in the kitchen and look after me, you know, that's, yeah. and that's a very defined role. Mm. Um, and so, again, that informs us in terms of our emotions and our ideas around intimacy. But I wonder in terms of nowadays whether parents are still like that or not and whether, whether there is a very distinct, mm. um, whether it is still very traditional. I think in some households it would be, but not... Not I th all. I think, I think it's it, changing. I think it helped that Paul's parents were desperately in love by the sound of it. Mm. Yeah. Like they were a good... My mum and dad were a little bit different. Um, yeah. dad, dad drove a truck for a living. 
And when he got home, he would, help, he would make dinner some nights. And mum looked after the four. She had four babies under five. Jesus. Um, but by the time we reached, I was about maybe 11. She had a series of part-time jobs. Uh, and then she went back to school and studied to be a social worker. And then she worked in foster care for 25 years. And dad really supported her doing that. I often thought that um, dad would have loved to have gone to school. They both dropped out when they were 15. Um, through various family reasons. But, um, you know, Dad would have probably loved it. But, but he was really supportive of Mum doing that. And so Dad was always doing stuff around the house. I don't think we had that, quite that, that divide of that mm. traditional, you know, Mum does the housework and, and, mm. and Dad goes off to work. Because um, your, your dad was also very tender towards yeah, you he was. too. Yeah, Whereas my was dad was... Very was, jealous. Yeah, it was yeah. like, the, it was the opposite. And it's interesting, isn't it? If you look back at families and you write about your family, you think, well, why, why was my dad like that? He looked like the sort of guy that could walk into a bar and take 10 people on. <laughs> you know, he had, he had um, tattoos on his arms that he did himself in the Navy. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, but he was a gentleman and, he, and is a gentleman. And um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. But I, then I look back at his, his growing up. He's a Sydney boy too. So I was thinking about dad as I was flying in today. I always think about dad when I come to Sydney. I've got a large family in, in Sydney as well, but um, his dad died uh, in their home in Belmore when he was 11 years old. Um, not unlike your situation, Jason, he was home when it happened. Mm. His dad died of a heart attack and um, got pushed out of the way by, the, by everyone, you know, because the kids shouldn't be, be yeah. near that, but he was the only one with his dad. So then how did he know how to be a dad? He was just making it up as he goes along. And now that I've got um, three boys, I, I completely understand we're all just making it up as we go along. <laughs> but Dad had no, no instructions from his father because he didn't have one. So uh, I just thank goodness that he was the way he was, you know, and I'm just so lucky. But Mum was a feminist. Yeah. And my dad was... She never used the feminist word, but she was. And I think Dad was as close to a feminist as, as, as any dad could be yeah. you know, in my neighbourhood. Um, so, yeah... I can't blame them for any of my in inadequacies <laughs> uh, relating to, to girls and women. Yeah, you're on your own, Paul. I am. <laughs> Jason, because your dad was very, you know, not emotionally available. Mm. Um, and some of the saddest kind of chapters for me reading this book, and I, I don't read things to find sadness, but it's just kind of like this creeping loneliness, I think, when after your mum died, after you watched her die and, and the trauma of that, and then kind of having this man who wasn't equipped necessarily to be a trauma counsellor, but also just the, like, the practical outcome of that is that there's suddenly no food in the fridge. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, yeah. think you're eating the same, like, frozen shit, um, basically. <laughs> well, that's right, because cause after mum died, I mean, uh, me and my dad are very different personalities, and so we were, we just clashed, and, you know, I, I was more open than him. I wanted to talk about mum, but, but he didn't want to talk about her so he would always shut me down. And after uh, she died, we were, we were in a, an emergency, you know, a, a, food, a food emergency, um, because Dad didn't really have that role in the kitchen. You know, he would grill some chops, but <laughs> he didn't really uh, cook any meals. So we um, had, a, had a Jewish family friend who sort of came to the rescue, and uh, she, she kind of took us under her wing and looked after us. And taught us how to, you know, to, to, fend, to fend for ourselves and gave us a few, you know, recipes. And quite a lot of food to take home. Yeah, exactly, yeah. From, the, from the fridge. <laughs> um, and, I mean, obviously you started 
slowly, I guess, teaching yourself to cook. Did your dad ever pick up any skills? Um, no, no, because in, as I say, he, he used to grill chops and I was sort of expected to just work it out myself. <laughs> so I started by, you know, boiling an egg and That's that pretty, was well, that was a disaster because you just go. What this? You look at the the oven and it's a, you know, the stove top and it's a contraption and you're not not really, you know, no one's there to show me how to put it on and how, what what to do and how long do you keep the egg in there and so it was a real struggle. Um, and so I'm just very grateful to, you know, the family friends who helped us at that time. Yeah, I wanted to talk about your mum because, you know, I I know a bit about mental health. She was a beautiful woman who clearly struggled. What did you find out about her in the researching of this book and about, you know, what, or what did you come to understand about her, her life and, and your relationship to her? Yeah, be, be, because I didn't know what the cause of her sorrow was, um, I had a lot of stigma towards her because, uh, you know, because of her mental illness yeah. and it was, it, was embarrassed, it was embarrassing and it was um, shameful to, when she was behaving in a bizarre way. And so what happened in, as part of the investigation was I needed documentation. So I went to pursue to find her medical records and also the letters that she used to write to my half-sister in Malaysia. Because my half-sister, this, this is where it gets very complicated, <laughs> but, but, but my half-sister is 10 years older than me. Uh, she's Muslim. She uh, uh, was from my mother's first marriage. And um, there was always a question around why the hell did she exist, you know, because mum told me at six years old that, oh, you've got a half-sister in Malaysia. <laughs> and and that was about a, her day. <laughs> yeah, and that was a real bombshell because I was, I was growing up as an only child in Melbourne and to suddenly have this girl in my life was, was a shock and she was kind of gate-crashing our lives in, in suburban Melbourne. <laughs> but she was the connection. She was the... She's the the answer to, to my investigation because um, she's at the centre of it and why, you know, why did mum leave her in Malaysia before she came to Australia and why would she do that? Why did her ex-husband have custody of her daughter and why did mum leave her? And so, without giving too much away, um, uh, the medical records explains part of that but it was the letters which explained more and my interviews with my, my relatives in Malaysia. As well. and, and how, you know, because you kind of built that wall at age 12 around your mum, um, you come back to do this project, again, without telling you exactly what happens, but how has your view of her changed? Well, this memoir has been restorative and redemptive because it's, it's redefined my view of mum because after she died, I carried a lot of bad memories of her and now... Uh, I've been able to let, let go of those bad memories uh, because I was able to find the woman and not the illness. And uh, there's some beautiful photos in the centre no, of the I book, the photos. Um, which I was able to retrieve because Dad is an avid photographer and he's completely mad about it. And, but, but, but from their first date, they have a photo. That's right. It's, it's kind of a selfie from the 1970s because they, they went on... The, they, they, Dad put an ad in the Melbourne newspaper and... They, it was a blind date, and they met under the clocks of <laughs> Flinders Street Station. And As you do. Yeah, and again, you know, um, he's a mad photographer. He had his, his Petri camera and a tripod, and he set it up and did a little selfie. 
Um, and that's a beautiful story. And yeah. so I think that what I wanted to do with this book was create something beautiful out of devastation because, you know, my family in many ways, on, a, on multiple levels, have been living in a state of devastation. And so my purpose was to go back to the past to actually retrieve um, the light and to shine a light into the darkness of my past. Um, and so, you know, it's completely changed my view of my mum. Uh, and so now I can think of her in a more compassionate way. That's beautiful. Um, she did sound like an amazing human being, like even just in her tics and qualities and things like that. Just, just uh, you know, very kind and generous, and that's something that, you know, really shone through through this investigation. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I always get bamboozled by time when I do these things, so we've got 24 minutes left. I do want you to start thinking about if you've got questions you want to ask, because we will, will go to audience questions, and we've got mics up here on either end of the stage. Um, left and right. So when I call time, just to start percolating some questions um, in case you... I don't want to put you on the spot, put it that way, um, because I'm a nice person. Um, Paul, you, I, I do want to... Uh, I want to have a bigger discussion about masculinity, but I also really want to talk to you about Mrs Mack because I have a huge soft spot for teachers. Have you got a Mrs Mack? I've got many Mrs Macks in my <laughs> life. I think, in fact, lots of my primary school teachers actually flew to Sydney for the launch of my first book. Oh, that would have been special. Yeah. Yeah. I put them all up in a house with my mum. Yeah, oh, my um, Yeah, <laughs> cost me a fortune. <laughs> 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 oh, thank you, Mrs Wimmer. Thank you, Mrs Rabbit. Yes, but um, without them. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, but, I mean they, they yeah. open up a world that I didn't know existed, that you didn't know existed, yeah. that boys could like literature and yeah. that words could move you. Yeah, Mrs. Mack was um, my teacher of literature. She was, as far as we can work out, she was the first teacher to take on a literature course for senior students. So I did it in year 11, um, and uh, there were 10 girls, uh, and then I followed in year 12. There were 10 girls in the class and two boys, <laughs> uh, myself and my best mate, Adam, who never read a book in his life. <laughs> <laughs> and proudly states today. Uh, actually, not even proudly. I said to him, did you read any of those books? <laughs> mate. I only did it because you did it. Um, but I did it because I had an inkling that I, that I um, liked books, I guess. But, but also, English was very easy for me. And I thought, well, I'll do literature. And, um, but I was drawn to this teacher. She would teach us um, Shakespeare, um, you know, really old books that I could make. You know, I just needed her to translate, basically. Yep. She took us to a play. That, that year, 1993, there was a full teacher strike through the whole year. No <laughs> extracurricular activities. Jeff Kennett had just come to power and and cut money out of the budget. And so teachers weren't doing anything outside of school. But Mrs. Mack took her entire literature class to go and see a, a local amateur um, Shakespeare play. And I loved it. You know, I was sitting in a room like this, looking up at the stage, not understanding a word of what yeah. they were saying, <laughs> but I felt almost a, uh, and I'm, I'm not a religious person, but I felt almost this sort of spiritual um, feeling of, of, of joy and this is something new. And um, I didn't know I could feel that way. And then the big turning point for me was I enjoyed the texts and, and having her explain them to me. But the big turning point was when she gave me a book one day called I Heard the Owl Call My Name by Margaret Craven, um, which for those of you who don't know, it's uh, a book about a religious minister who got sent by his bishop to a far-flung um, community in British Columbia to learn enough about life that he might be ready to die. It's a small book, almost a fable. Uh, it's sold millions of copies around the world. So it's a, it's a, 
It's a really famous book written by uh, Margaret Craven when she was 69 years old. Nothing like I would have chosen for myself. No. My, my chosen reading, things that I, I picked up and read for fun, um, was uh, the newspaper. I'd flip straight to the back and read about football <laughs> and not much else. So um, she gave me this book and I read it. And when I, when I was reading it, I had another f sort of almost spiritual feeling. And I felt um, the best way I can describe it is it felt like this electric charge. Not only was the story so beautiful and sad and, and you know, I was willing this guy not to die, but he was inevitably going to die at the end. Uh, I was transported to another place. The language was so, so beautiful that I had to reread sentences and paragraphs and read them slowly so that they would last. And so that was the beginning of me um, and books and wanting to, to read more stories. And it was the closest thing I came to the joy I felt on a football field. I was, well, I was going to say, because like, you've given me two beautiful things in this book. You've given me Paul Kennedy, the literature lover, and you finally, finally told me what goes on inside the boys' locker room. <laughs> um, because I've never known. We didn't really have a tradition of that at my public not, high school. Not the showers. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not going to read that part, don't worry, no. but it is in the book. Um, but, you, I mean, because, I mean, the entire time you're reading these beautiful words, certainly I would have been in, at my high school, I'm just waiting for someone to, like, lean over my shoulder and just call out gay. Yeah. Because, like, yeah. liking things is gay in and of itself, quote-unquote, yeah. um, in the pejorative. Obviously, being gay is great. Um, but just also just the way you describe the, the psyche. Like, there's... Mm. Um, you know, when you, you're playing a match in great pain and you're just kind of like, this is fine mm. um, because that means you're, you're trying and you're putting your best effort in and the more collisions you can have, yeah. the better it is for you. And I'm like, I have done everything in my life to avoid physical pain. Yeah. Like every possible thing. I've never broken a bone. Um, and yet here you are describing something that I've witnessed in everyone around me, every boy I've ever grown up with and half the women, mm. um, which is just run headlong into things. What, yeah. what is that? that? That's trying to prove your courageousness. Yeah. You know, that, it's prove, a funny way to go about it. Prove your it? courage. Yeah, I, I used to play foot, one, of the, one of the things that I liked about football was getting into a situation where I, I could be called courageous. So in, in football, there's a thing called going back with the flight of the ball. If the ball's going back, it's unlikely you're going to catch it or mark it, but you do it anyway. And the great likelihood is that somebody is going to hammer into you the other way. And you can't see. You don't look that back. Well, worse. that's the thing. If you look back, you might be called soft. Um, so there's, there's that thing. I, I coach very differently these days. I will tell players, <laughs> um, I, that's okay. The, the fact that you're here at training and you're playing this game <laughs> means you've had courage and I'll never doubt your courage, oh. uh, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll like you anyway. Um, turn around and watch someone else market and save yourself some hospital stuff. Is there a part of you that still says to the like thinks to the kids, "Come on, yeah. have a crack"? Well, there is Rick. That's well spotted. Um, because <laughs> I mean, because your your self talk is still your self talk. So yeah. I still have the conversations, and the words are still in there from when I grew up. Yeah. Some of them awful phrases, but they're still there. But I I had a I coached a schoolboy team on the weekend. One of the big things I talk, talk to my um, young players about is this uh, fear of failure. And so in re-examining, I was on the cusp of, of AFL. So if I played a really exceptional year that year, I would have been drafted. Yeah. Um, and I played half a good year. I was reading this and I was excited for you. I'm like, <laughs> come on, Paul, come on. But then I started drinking before games. You know, I'd, I'd play on a Saturday and I'd get um, drink to become unconscious the night before. And so... Why did I do that? That, that was me 
having an immense fear of failure because if I didn't get drafted, then at least I could blame, my, blame the fact that I got drunk. And I might have people think, oh, he doesn't care that much. Um, so I was giving, you know, giving in to that fear of failure. So um, there's the courage thing, but also that I talk to young players about, but, but also this fear of failure. Recognise that it's there in everything you do and mm. it, it might be there in every, every uh, corner you go around in life. Um, and then do it to the best of your ability anyway. And actually, I, I spent a lot of time through that book talking about the, um, you know, those doubts and the words still being in your head. Yeah. When you write a memoir, as both of you know, there's, there's enormous self-doubt. And so at every turn, you're thinking, oh, is this going to be good? So I had the same fear of failure that I had when I was 17 years old, trying to fall in love and, and getting into fights, but also had, uh, being petrified and, and trying to make the AFL and ruining for myself <laughs> and having my literature teacher see that I was self-destructing. But this time with the book, at least I said to myself, no, I'm a grown-up now. I've, <laughs> I've, I can't cut any corners. I'm going to do it as, as well as I can and I will have no excuses and no regrets. So, uh, you know, it's never too late. I'm 46 years old. <laughs> but but the, the one thing also that helped me is getting back to Mrs. Mack. I asked her when I was writing the book. I tracked her down and I said, why did you give me that book? I heard the owl call my name by Margaret Craven. Um, it was very left field for me, for an mm. atheist, uh, you know, footy head like me. Yeah. And she said, I wanted to show you that there are other ways to be a man. And, I, I um, and when, that hit home. When, yeah, yeah when, you, when I read that part. Um, and it's like you, you took your dad's advice as well, where he said, I see you go to the gym every day. You're pretty good at that. Yeah. Working hard to improve your body. Maybe it's time you did something to improve your personality and attitude. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so effective in the ways that I think only fathers um, Dash, or parents can those, be. Those, those soft couple of sentences, softly spoken, shattered my world yep. and, and made me reassess. Because, I mean, we're, we're, we are running out of time, but just quickly and give away as much as you want, but you kind of did already. You did um, end up expelled um, mm -hmm. from the school just at the end of the year. You I, broke, broke, into the, I broke into the school hall yep. and there was a silent alarm. That was on muck-up day. Yep. So I, I got expelled but had to do my exams at another school. Drunk, like... Just Completely drunk and... Um, toasted. Making poor choices. Do you think, um, because one of the cops involved later on, you found out, um, basically decided that you deserved a second chance and they dropped the charges. Got me off the charges, yeah. 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 Which is an amazing thing, except it's, <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm sure that's not something they apply equally, right? I don't know, um, yeah. I, yeah. Don't, I don't know why he did that. Um, like, imagine if you were from, like, an African refugee. Yeah. Do you reckon he would have done the same thing? Maybe he would have, I don't know. He was a good man. He was, uh, I didn't know him well, but... Um, a couple of years after I left high school with no, no hopes or uh, any way forward, I became a journalist and uh, was it's, able it's, to... It's still the same thing, Paul. <laughs> was a, thank you. <laughs> I was able to, uh, to pick up a cadetship and I was reporting in the local area. I had to go to the local police station every week to get the little police news. And um, when I rocked up, uh, Senior Sergeant Mike McInerney said, uh, oh, do I know you? And then we joined the dots and he said, oh, yeah, the, um, the school wanted to have you charged. He said, I talked them out of it. He could see that, um, that myself and two other friends were, uh, had made a dumb choice and deserved a second chance. It's a good question, though. If I, was, if I was from a different background, would I have been given that chance? I don't know. Well, because, I mean, I think about it in my own hometown because my brother was constantly... Because it was, it's like any criminal that plies their trade in Boona is not operating at, you know, mm. full fire because yeah. everyone knows everyone. 
And so it's like if there's a break in, it's like it's either Scotty or um, <laughs> did yep. someone see Toby on the push bike? Okay. Yeah. Um, and one day he got pulled over, and one of the cops was like, "Oh, you're um, I read your brother's book." And then <laughs> my brother got excited. Yeah. Um, and it's just like you know, like I mean, and that's great in terms of like community policing, but I just you know, it bothers me whether it is extended everywhere. I'm sure it was in this case. Yeah, it was very local, so perhaps very that's, hard to that's tell the sometimes. explanation, yeah. Um, Jason, you, you also became a journalist for your mm. sins um, because your dad, you know, was doing the radio at SBS for a long time, but you weren't necessarily following in his footsteps. No, because he was a part-time radio broadcaster at SBS and he set up the Khmer language program um, at the end of the 1970s. Um, and so we, me and Mum would always listen to the program, you know, late at night and it'd be on, but I, I couldn't speak or understand Khmer, neither could Mum because she was Eurasian, so we would just, like, sit and listen to Dad's voice. Um, I, I can't either, by the way. So what's that? I can't either. <laughs> I can't understand it either. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, so there was never the connection because, you know, I would always... I'm kind of like a, a, a child of SBS, you know. I, I grew up with SBS around me and, in fact, my cadetship, my first uh, job in journalism was at SBS TV. Um, so I've kind of grown up with that broadcaster. Um, but it, I never made the connection between, oh, I want to be like Dad because... You know, it's not mainstream. It wasn't mainstream media. He yeah. was he was he was in community radio in a way, um, and so you know, I remember when I wanted to get into journalism, I always thought you know I was good at writing and I liked the news. But the news was always in our household, and perhaps that kind of seeped through. Um, we'd always have National Nine News on, not not yeah. necessarily ABC or SBS, but it was always <laughs> National Nine News because. We, we were we grew the real up in Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, like, we, we grew up in Melbourne and Melbourne's a very strong Channel 9, you know, um, city, as you would know. <laughs> um, but I never made the connection. And I remember trying to get into RMIT for the, the first time, um, you know, having the interview, sat the test and then going to the interview. And, um, you know, the, the lecturer was saying so why do you want to be a journalist? And I didn't have an answer. I prepared for all the other questions, but I didn't actually even have that answer because I, I really didn't know. You know, when you're out of high school, you don't know. Like one of those interviews, what, yeah. Why are you the plumber here, one? You know? Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've, you know, I've, I've ironed that out now. Yes, but, of course. Um, but <laughs> why do you want to be a journalist? Yeah. <laughs> the longer um, you're in it, the, the harder it is to answer. Yeah, <laughs> and, but, but she... But, so I sort of came up with this... I said, oh, you know, well, Dad worked at SBS and... And then she sort of presumed that I just wanted to be like my dad and that was why I wanted to get into journalism. That's, that's not a good reason. No. Um, and so she was very unimpressed by that and then I didn't get through the first time. I, so I feel like um, she was being a bit mean. I think so. And because I had been writing letters to the editor, to the yeah. age. Um, that's as good an you know, indicator I'd, I'd as done, you like, get. I'd done a newspaper. I'd, you know, I'd, I was really keen and it was just that one question, I think, that perhaps I didn't answer properly, which is a crucial question, but at the same time, I had a whole portfolio. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> of course you had a portfolio. Yeah, I had a portfolio. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you were very organised. Um, I, I don't want to make this a conversation about journalism, but the one thing that did stick out to me when I was reading about your kind of up-and-coming mm. career was what you, you mentioned, and this is still tr so true today, there were a few other Asian journalists on TV. Um, uh, across all the networks. Some networks would have zero. And in 2004, you could count on your fingers um, how many of us there were. I would go on to develop a sixth sense for other Asian journalists in the Australian media, a kind of racial gaydar. Um, it hasn't 
gotten much better? Well, I, I would tend to disagree Please. because I think that when I started in 2004, it's a vastly different time. Yeah. And again, there was no awareness about cultural diversity. No one talked about it. And, you know, there weren't bodies like Media Diversity Australia or a whole bunch of personalities talking very loudly on Twitter about these issues. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people out there now talking about it. So, you know, when I look at some of the journos who are maybe five years younger than me, um, you know, culturally diverse, and I'm like, uh, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> Hang on a sec. You know, when, when I was starting, you know, there was zero. No one talked about it. And so I f feel like I'm a bit of a pioneer in that sense because I was one of the few Asian <laughs> journos on television. Um, when I was at SBS, you know, it was Lee Lin Chin, who everyone knew, and then, like, to you know, a handful of other journos and there was like maybe one journal at the ABC. But again, like the commercial networks had zero. Yeah. And now there's, there's, much, there's many more, yes. um, particularly at the ABC. And I think there's a recognition that that, that is changing. And, and The ABC definitely know. is doing amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah. So it, it is changing, yeah. I think. I'm more optimistic. I was I'm, in my head I'm, because I was thinking more about diversity across race but also class. And like as a batch, journalists don't strike uh, me as being... Wholly representative still, but I maybe mean, that's just. Me. I mean, class is interesting because you know journalism began as a working class, yeah. mm. as a trade, and then it became professionalised in universities. Um, and now, you know, I would argue that you know it is a pretty elite industry. Yeah. I would say, and they still let us in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th I think um, Rick, your work and you know learning about your your background. Mm. Through your first book was um, yeah, it was refreshing for me because you know I was I grew up in the outer suburbs, um, not not far flung rural community, but I grew up in the outer suburbs yeah. and became a journalist and and I uh, sometimes am aware that um, a lot of journalists live in very close to the city and and all the rest of it. So yeah, I think it's it's worth a discussion about that type of diversity. How we reflect the people we report about, right? Mm. Exactly. And I, I yeah, mean, no. in my work, I still feel that connection. You know, I, you know, I, I've still recognised my working class roots. Yeah. You know, even though I do work for the ABC. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I do remember that, and I think all three of us have that have that same sort of upbringing where it is. Well, you're still connected through your parents. That's right. Like I, I, I would have moved on, not moved on, but I would have. It's easy to forget sometimes. I think, mm -hmm. and it, were it not for mum, and were it not for these reminders of what life is actually like outside our bubbles. Yeah, yeah, and it's very grounding, I think. I, th I, think, I think, you know, journos have to remember that because we're, we're reporting on these communities and we have, we have to, you know, speak for everyone. Yeah. Um, I've, we have some time for questions, so if you've got any questions you want to ask, anything that's burning, any burning desires whatsoever, we've got microphones on either end. Um, it's not a requirement. Um, Oh, do we have one keen bean already? That's great, because I was just going to keep mumbling otherwise. <laughs> um, Paul, just a question for you. Um, I've got a 16-year-old son who loves his AFL, loves his cricket. Yep. He's on the precipice of manhood, yes. but he's not an alpha male. Yep. Um, would you recommend your book to my son? And what would you say to him before he re reads it? Uh, you need to read it first, and then you would. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and the, reason, the reason I pause is my... my um, well, my wife and I, are, we've, uh, my eldest is 16 now, and all of the things that I talk about in the book, emotional suppression, disparagement of feminine, um, sexual conquest uh, uh, and bragging about that, um, I would, he, he has read my book um, and I would 
would have loved to have been a light bulb moment for him to go, oh, you know, I need to express myself more. I need to be kinder and not use this language. And, um, but he's in a peer group. And so I, I think the answer is yes. I think boys need to, be, need to hear older men talking about uh, and giving permission for them to, to express themselves, or at least not even express themselves, talk about how they're feeling to someone. Um, so that would be a good reason for it. Um, definitely, uh, if he wants to, to make it in professional sport, like I couldn't, um, drinking the night before um, key games <laughs> or, uh, or winding up in the gutter uh, the night after a game at the MCG is not the way to do it. So, uh, yes, yeah, I, w I would recommend it. And, and I guess um, having three boys, I wouldn't have written this book if I wasn't comfortable with them reading it and, and learning about their father's mistakes. So, I, yeah. I mean, to throw my two bob in, I reckon kids that age should read it. Mm. Like, I, I, I think it should be on school reading lists yeah. um, for that reason. Um, they're dealing with some pretty big stuff nowadays, I think. Yeah, kids uh, aren't naive. No. As not anywhere naive as we We, we don't we get to gatekeep out. anymore, do we? No, no, I think you've got to give them permission, um, particularly boys. I, I don't have daughters, so I haven't got that experience. But, um, yeah, we need to have our, our boys and young men expressing themselves because it's very dangerous to keep keep stuff inside yeah. and and to um you know to think you're all alone in the world and and uh, and not be able to tell people about uh your your desires for love and uh companionship and and success and all those things yeah i i, I worry for my sons and i worry for their friends yeah. if they keep all that bottled up it's got to go somewhere i am um, and yet jason you were trying to express yourself so much and your dad was vetoing record buys CD buys, or at least trying to <laughs> express myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Madonna. Is that a Madonna? Yeah, that was oh, a Madonna well, look, joke. I mean, that's, yeah, look, yeah. I mean, I thought I was doing, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, no, it was, it was Madonna. So, I mean, look, Dad, Dad was very, very strict. And, and he, he was, you know, he would always say to me, you know, you need discipline. And he was all very authoritarian, whereas Mum was, you know, anarchic. Um, and, you know, he would say no to AO. TV and movies on the, you know, on the TV and he'd jump up and, like, turn it off. And then, you know, <laughs> even my the music choices. Yeah, you know, yeah. he would always, like, you know, censor my music choices. And one day I wanted to buy Madonna's Erotica. Um, <laughs> and, you know, for some... But somehow I managed to buy it from Brushes. You know, somehow he bought it. <laughs> like um, he didn't... But did he, he, he didn't even twig that, yeah. you know, it was um, Madonna moaning and, you know... <laughs> Uh, you turned out so fine. We've got time for yeah, one more question. Let's do uh, it. My question is a follow-up to the previous gentleman. Uh, would Jason recommend his book be read by a 16-year-old boy? And why was Paul's book singled out? Because football was involved. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good this question. Is the meat of the issue. Um, th that's a really good question. I think um, the question was, would a 16-year-old boy read... I, I, I definitely... Look... Uh, my, my book is very much about relationships between fathers and sons. It is very much about fathers and sons. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, th there's a contrast between my dad and me, who was, like, so f full of energy and wanting to be open and to, to talk about things and also about sexuality, you know, because um, I, I was very upfront with dad when I came out um, in my 20s and he, he couldn't deal with it. Mm. And it's, he took you back to the doctor. He, he took me to the doctor, yeah, yeah. To, to try and work it out for himself. Um, and he had a 16-year denial of my sexuality. 
um, you know, coming come around to 2017, him, propo him proposing a proposed uh, an arranged marriage with a Cambodian woman, um, and I think that I, I think that again, it is about as Paul says, it is about expressing ourselves as as men. So I think that it's a sort of a study on my dad on on, on fathers in a way, yeah. um, and in, and in type you know being that type of father who is so stoic but also very, very repressed. Um, and I think that for a 16-year-old, um, you know, I reckon it, it's an amazing world in that book um, and I, I would recommend it. It really yeah. is. I mean, I, I would say that about both these books as we wrap up. Um, I don't get paid to say these things and I wouldn't if I didn't actually think them, but reading both of these apart from all of the other beautiful kind of thoughts and ideas that are in there about men and masculinity and parenthood and being a child, it's just they're both beautiful nostalgia trips. Um, and I'm a huge sucker for nostalgia. Um, you know, the brands of the chips and the, the what songs were playing. Rhythm is a Dancer, Paul was big. <laughs> the era of grunge. Yeah, the grunge. 1990s. And you had a ponytail. I had a ponytail. Is, there's, a, there's a lot of nostalgia yeah, for nice. Sometimes the, the memory lane stores should be... Mm. Blocked up, or maybe, yeah, or you would, maybe you'd have a ponytail now, would you? Oh, look, I always think about doing something different with my hair. You know, <laughs> yeah. dying at blonde. I have been thinking about dying at blonde. Yeah, that, that's um, very big yeah. in the gay world. Actually, you go through your, <laughs> your midlife crisis and you go fully blonde. I think I'm there. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I can do I'm it. I'm too pale, um, which is a shame. If you want to continue that lovely discussion, um, we will all be signing our books at the very end of this session. Um, just outside in the library. Thank you so much for coming along, everyone, and being yes, such thank, an engaging thank audience. Thank you very much. Um, much appreciated. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.